This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Veterans Health Administration is busy trying to gather what you might call the innovation lessons learned during the pandemic. These ranged from ways of reducing person-to-person spread of the virus to optimal designs for 3D-printed personal protection devices. For a summary, the chief officer of the VHA Office of Healthcare Innovation and Learning, Dr. Ryan Vega, he spoke with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. I think I wanted to start with, you know, your history with 3D printing and the innovation ecosystem. I know this is something that you've long been working on, you've invested in pretty heavily, but obviously during the pandemic, it's taken on, you know, new meaning here. So can you get us up to speed on what investments you have made in 3D printing and how that has helped you over the last year and a half or so? Absolutely. The history of 3D printing, particularly in the VA space, spans almost a decade. And up until the point of the pandemic, we had really begun organizing ourselves as a more cohesive network. We had over 30 medical centers who were utilizing this technology. And in a lot of ways, with any emerging technology, we saw the pandemic accelerate the application and the importance of the use of those services, whether it was telehealth or in this case, 3D printing. Predominantly because hospitals across the world recognize that the technology could be used to bolster and to augment limited supply chain. In our case, we really were able to move the needle, so to speak, in the application of 3D printing and what it means for medical device development. And where we sit today is having three of our medical centers registered with the FDA as medical device manufacturers and have gone through nearly 18 months of work with the FDA and NIH and other partners, building up our infrastructure to not only do the production, but the testing, the validation, some of the early phase design work. And all of that culminated in the ability not only to produce swabs or other devices that were used on the clinical front lines during the pandemic, but a couple of months ago, our center in Charleston, received FDA emergency use authorization for hearing stents. A veteran who had bilateral hearing loss due to collapsed ear canals had actually come up with the idea that instead of surgery, he could craft these straws at home to put in his ears to keep his canal open. Well, certainly his audiologist and his clinician team didn't want him walking around with straws in his ears. They were able to turn to 3D printing and create a medical device that up until that point hadn't existed. Uh, and then submit that medical device design file. uh, And FDA was able to grant emergency youth authorization to get it into the veteran, prevent him from having surgery. And then as we know, it aired on the Today Show. And then the center started to get calls, interestingly, from around the world, one of those being from Australia, for other patients who saw this segment and said, I could really benefit from this technology. So what the pandemic did in terms of its acceleration out of necessity was really help us formalize and cement this, not as just an innovation, but as a core part of the way that we deliver care and service. And when it comes to 3D printing PPE, I think you all have made some advancements in that space as well. Can you walk us through maybe where you started with that and where you are today, specifically with 3D printing PPE? One of the things that didn't exist at the onset of the pandemic in regards to 3D printing for PPE was the testing and the validation of all the different designs. It didn't exist because no one had ever had to utilize 3D printing for PPE. That was very, very important. 
for a number of fronts in that you have multiple different designs out there and everyone trying to figure out what does testing look like? How do we know that these devices are safe? They're clinically effective, that before we go use a swab on a patient, it's not going to break or that the break point to insert the swab into the testing medium material is spot on. We had to develop all of that. And that development led to our ability to understand where we should be focusing in terms of device production, meaning that instead of just hoping that five of these solutions worked, actually having the infrastructure to take multiple designs, compare them to the commercial standard, and then say, these two designs work the best, let's go. So it helped us learn how to be agile, helped us learn how to be iterative, but also helped us build the necessary infrastructure that can be translated to face shields or face masks or whatever else it may be. The other thing that was really important in terms of PPE production was the way that everyone came together in sort of an open source nature. You really saw this amazing exchange of ideas through the NIH exchange internationally, not just within the U.S., where people were able to share design files to continuously make solutions better. So we saw stopgap masks that were produced. One of the things that we were really excited about was our team at Seattle was able to create a papper hood. Now, the actual entire solution is not 3D printed, but what they did 3D print was a universal adapter so that you could wear the hood and utilize it in any of the different PAPR solutions. And so that was something that became really important because these were materials that were in far limited supply, especially at the height of the pandemic, that frontline providers relied on not only to keep them safe, their families safe, and their patients safe. And when you can't have these materials, and I'm you know, speaking as a practicing clinician who took care of COVID patients, it makes your job that much more stressful and challenging. So I think it was not only the collaboration, the agility, but the ability to have that testing and validation infrastructure so we know which solutions to invest in and then go to production more timely. You know, the innovation ecosystem, I mean, you all aren't just 3D printing. There have, I'm sure, been other innovative solutions that you've found, again, based on your own employees just working in their day-to-day jobs and coming to you with these ideas. Anything else, you know, maybe specifically related to the pandemic, specific solutions that you're really excited about? I think we're continuously seeing, and we were seeing this trend before the pandemic, but certainly the pandemic opened up, again, out of necessity, the need to see more care delivered in the home, not just telephonically or virtually but how we actually can monitor patients, provide solutions in patients' home that can augment the ability to deliver care. One of the initiatives that grew considerably during the pandemic was the initiative to end diabetic limb loss in veterans. Diabetic limb loss in veterans is is a major problem. When you look at the mortality that's suffered from a veteran who has a severe or major amputation as a result of diabetes or, or vascular disease, the five-year mortality is quite high. It's actually staggeringly high. And the cost of providing this care is inordinate. And so through the application of a floor mat, so to speak, I like to think of it as a thermometer for the diabetic foot. We can survey and monitor if the patient's developing a fever, to play upon that analogy. And that fever is detected weeks before the human eye or the best interventions we have at detecting the formation of an ulcer would happen. So this allows the veteran in their home for 12 seconds to stand on a floor mat, 
that information is sent to a team monitoring and we can detect early formation of these ulcers without the veteran ever having to step foot in the hospital, without the clinicians having to utilize a slot to see the veteran just for that. And so not only can we make the care delivery more effective and efficient, but we can think about new ways that this becomes part of the arsenal for monitoring without the veteran ever leaving their home. So that's a specific technology and innovation that I think we're really excited about because it's helping us build the infrastructure for how more and more care can be delivered in the home, but care that's effective, care that is efficient, and in some ways care that's equitable in the notion that you just need a cell phone to be able to transmit the data. So that's one I think we're really excited about. We're interested to see how that continues to change and impact the lives of veterans with diabetes. And you all have been hosting competitions among employees and others as part of the VHA ecosystem for a while. Any new competitions over the last year or anything upcoming that you might want to tell us about? Yeah, so we continued on with Sparksheet Spread, which is our internal investment competition through our Innovators Network. And upcoming in October, we'll have the Shark Tank event where we have employees pitching their competitions. One of the things that we always have recognized as a vital importance to building that innovation culture is you have to be investing in the workforce and those on the front line and recognizing that they own the workflows. They own also the problems with existing workflows or structures. And so they really are uniquely positioned to solve or to ideate or to provide feedback on how a particular innovation or solution may work. And it's also important to recognize that as sort of tough as this is to deliver to folks, not every idea is a great idea. And so you do want competition. You do want a way to not only foster that entrepreneurial spirit, but to recognize that we should have competition or a market that allows for those ideas that are sticking or growing or advancing to be the ones that we invest in. So there's a way to sort of create both that market dynamic and there's a way to continue to invest in our employees. One of the other things that has spun out of this, really led by the Innovators Network, is the Greenhouse Initiative, which allows external startups at early phases the opportunity to pitch to our Innovator Network sites. And those innovation specialists, clinicians, medical center directors can then compete to actually bring those solutions in and co-develop, co-ideate those early startups' ideas. And so it's a really unique new program that's bringing external ideas in, but giving our frontline staff the ability to help shape and apply those innovative solutions towards the veteran population or towards their work. So something we're really excited to see where it grows. We just had one competition a couple of weeks ago in partnership with the Founder Institute. I think there was well over 100, 150 applications, and I know 40 entities had pitched, and then a number of them have won and we'll be working with medical centers across the country. Is there anything you've learned over the last 18 months or so about finding ways to have your employees innovate in the medical space that you might build off of here for the future? I would acknowledge, and I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of at least pay some attention to the notion that we were able to pivot and to move as quickly as we did in the innovation space across VA, largely because of the infrastructure, largely because of the investments in the people. And I think what we recognized is that we can actually move that fast. 
what's going to be challenging is to not sort of what we think of as regressing back to the mean, right? Acquiescing back to sort of, it's okay to just continuously kind of trot along when you know that you can run as fast as you can. And how do you balance those two? Because it is stressful to move as fast when you don't have sort of that need and impetus to sort of move that quickly, but recognizing that we have the infrastructure, we have the capability. So how do we continuously build that system and the capability to deliver the solutions more timely and efficiently? And how do we prevent sort of that regression back to status quo? I think we've always been out ahead of this in VA from a healthcare standpoint, but I think that's going to be really important in knowing that the future of healthcare is going to continue to accelerate quickly from an emerging technology or delivery standpoint and continuously being out ahead and leading the way is going to require that agility, that flexibility, and that sort of resiliency in the system. Dr. Ryan Vega, Chief Officer for the Veterans Health Administration's Office of Healthcare Innovation and Learning, speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them 
and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was... It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. 
and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Will you and everyone you work with lose their minds if you don't use Upwork to bring in more talent to help? Yep. Can you afford to spend months finding that talent the old-fashioned way? No. Can you hire them in seconds on Upwork? Yep. Is it complicated? Nope. Can you have them as long as you need? Yep. Longer than you need? Nope. Is Upwork a newer, better way to work? Yep. Is this commercial over? Nope. What about now? Yep. Upwork. This is how we work now.